time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions, because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Greetings, my friends and patrons. Welcome to today's edition of the financial physician. Lou Scatigna here, certified financial planner. And your money doctor, each and every Sunday, 7 to 9 a.m. right here on 92.7 WOBM or anytime at the podcast at thefinancialphysician.com. Today and next week, we have a special pre-recorded show for you. Uh, currently, today, I am in Rome, Italy, uh, and uh, I'll be leaving tomorrow on a 10-day Greek cruise, so... I'm going to be uh, out Sunday uh, this week and uh, next Sunday as well. So don't worry about it. I have a great show planned for you. Uh, we have some pre-recorded new stuff that we're going to have in the shows. We're going to have some best of loose segments uh, 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 later on in the program as well. Uh, these are uh, spots that I picked that I, I, I think are very informative and something that I want you to hear again. You may have heard it before, but... Uh, uh, I have really good topics that I think are, are real important for you to hear again. So if, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you heard it before and you don't want to listen to it, that's fine. But I think that you're going to enjoy what we have to bring to you later on, uh, in the best of loose segments here on the financial, uh, physician. So, uh, this week's show and next week's show will be pre-recorded. I'll be back live with you Sunday, June the 3rd, uh, to do our live program. So let's start today's show talking about what a lot of people are concerned about, what a lot of people have talked to me about, uh, sent me emails, said, Lou, could you cover this on a program? Uh, And that's central bank digital currencies. Now, this is something that kind of came out of the blue. Uh, I don't recall hearing about it until about two years ago. And, you know, I'm pretty connected to everything that's going on financial everything that's going on politically, everything that's going on in Washington. And it was news to me a couple of years ago. I go, what are they talking about? Isn't that similar to uh, ATMs? I mean, you're using your card all the time. Isn't that digital money, really? And, and in a way, it is. I mean, it's not cash in your pocket. And if we look uh, back at the last, what, 10, 15, 20 years, people use less and less cash. Uh, especially the younger generation, uh, you know, they use their 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 debit card for a cup of coffee. And I have to admit, I too have pretty much hardly ever have any cash on me. I always use my credit card or my debit card, uh, and I just think cash is kind of antiquated. But the one thing about cash is that you could do transactions without anybody knowing about it. Now, if you use your ATM card, obviously there's a bank record of of that transaction. But privacy laws and banks pretty much prevent that information to be given out, you know, without a subpoena. So what are central bank digital currencies? Well, they're very similar to blockchain-based products like Bitcoin. 
but they're directly controlled by central bankers. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, Bitcoin's out there, so what's the difference? Well, the difference is that Bitcoin, your, your transactions are, are private. Well, unlike Bitcoin, the digital currencies will not be private because the central bank and the government will have access to all this information and they'll know everything that you're spending money on. And if cash is outlawed at, at that time, uh, every single financial transaction you do, you'll have to do it with uh, central bank digital currencies. And this is pretty Orwellian in nature, if you ask me. And I don't think you could overstate that. Uh, uh, in a cashless society, um, everybody's going to be dependent on these digital products, whether you're, uh, you're going to get paid in digital currency, uh, you're going to buy things like uh, goods and services with digital currency, uh, and they'll, we'll end all privacy in trade or in purchases or in services or whatever. There's no way you will have anonymity in how you live your life. And of course, like anything else governments do, uh, they say, oh, we're not going to look into what you do unless there was a criminal activity. They always say that. And then we find out that they've been spying on us for years. Remember, uh, John Brennan came before Congress and said that the NSA doesn't spy on Americans. Well, sure enough, it came out that they do. The metadata from, uh, you know, all your texts, all your phone calls, all your emails, NSA has it all. And whether or not they tell you that they're looking at you or not, you have no idea of knowing. And the big concern with digital currencies is now they could be used, they could be programmed to modify Americans' behavior. And how can they modify your behavior? Well, say, for example, that you, uh, you like to eat steak regularly. You have steak a couple of times a week. Uh, but your authoritarian government decides to list red meat as a health risk and a climate change risk due to the carbon emissions that you know cows emit from farting. Yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, farting cows account for some big amount of methane in the atmospheres, at least according to these uh, climate people. So if they determine that uh, your purchase history, they can go back and see that uh, they have full access to it, they can look at it, that you have uh, contributed more carbon pollution than most people by eating red meat often. They could say, well, uh, you have to pay a retroactive climate fee. Because you're causing, you know, you're using more carbon than the average person. Not only that, how about your insurance company? Your insurance company sends you a letter indicating that you're a medical risk. And they cut you off from your health coverage. And that, that's true of alcohol. Say, you know, they could see that you go to Joe's Liquor Store uh, uh, three times a week and you're purchasing $100 worth of alcohol a week. Well, they say that's not good for your health, and that's not good for the healthcare system because alcohol causes people uh, to need healthcare, and it could affect Medicare and it could affect Medicaid and all that, and it's a um, it's a burden on the healthcare system. They could say that about cigarettes too. Now, you spend too much money on cigarettes, and you're a burden to the healthcare system. So we have to charge you a surplus uh, over and above your health insurance premium. Uh, so we're going to just automatically take uh, $150 a month from your digital currency account. And they just take it. You don't pay it. They just take it. 
uh, this can get really, uh, really Orwellian really quick. Uh, and uh, what if they don't like your social credit score? You made a comment on social media, uh, and uh, China's already doing this, by the way. Uh, uh, you refuse to get your annual um, uh, vaccine shot. Uh, uh, the algorithm makes note of that. You didn't. You didn't make your payment for your um, your annual booster. Now you're under suspicion of being an anti-vaxer. Your social credit score plummets, and um, they cut you off from certain venues. You're not allowed to go here or there, or spend money there or here. And uh, access to. Uh, economic activity and that's what this is if they can control that uh it is the greatest oppressive tool they could use i mean that's how insidious this is this is so bad uh and they have so much power and most americans don't want it but it's coming and it's not only coming here so far 80 something countries around the world and this is all being coordinated uh through central banks what if you uh, one day you get angry about a particular government policy uh, or a, a politician that's in office like the president of the United States? Uh, so you make a statement on social media and then it just simply uh, shut off your option to transfer your digital money to others until you submit or you die. What if the, the party in power? Cuts off your ability to fund uh, the opposition party. Uh, oh no, you can't! You can't send money to Trump. I mean, he's an insurrectionist, and you now are an accessory to insurrection. Uh, you see where this goes? Now they were already instituting uh, the first stage of this is coming coming out in July. It's called Fed Now. Uh, it's not a CBDC. It's not. It's not a digital currency. But it's an intermediary step to get there, and uh, that comes into effect. And it's a way of moving money quickly between entities. And I don't want to get too deep into uh, Fed now, right now. But this is all being coordinated through the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS. Now, most people may have heard the word the Bank of International Settlements, but don't know what it really means. The Bank of International Settlements has been called uh, the central bank, central bank, where all the central banks coordinate through there. Uh, and uh, and this, is a, this is a globalist institution, right? Just like the International Monetary Fund, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum. Whenever you hear the word world or international, it is a globalist by nature uh, institution. And uh, if you ever wondered how it is possible for so many national central banks to operate in tandem, it's all due to the BIS. Everything goes through the Bureau of International Settlements. So what does that mean? That means that the Federal Reserve is not necessarily loyal to Americans uh, or American, the American government, for that matter. They're loyal to the dictates of the BIS and the world government, whoever they are. So the BIS, the Bureau of uh, uh, the Bank of International Settlements, is running the ball with digital currency. They're the ones who are pushing it and pushing it hard because it's another way to control the humans in the entire world. 
And this is authoritarian. This is all part of the reset agenda. And, uh, and people don't like it. Uh, I think two-thirds of Americans, when um, this is explained to, say, I don't want this. I don't want the government to know everything I'm doing with my money. Even if it's not illegal. Oh, you go to McDonald's too often. You're eating those greasy burgers and fries. So you're at obesity risk. And that's a risk to the healthcare system. So automatically your premiums go up in your health insurance. Uh, and uh, we're going to watch you and make sure that now nah, if you if you start behaving and start buying salads instead, well, maybe, you know, maybe we won't charge you that anymore. Control. It's all about control. And unfortunately, it's about political control, because eventually, whoever the tyrannical government is, the government who uh, gets into power and then says there is no more elections. Because elections aren't fair and the other side cheats. Meanwhile, they're the one doing all the cheating and they're going to say, no, we can't have elections anymore. Uh, We're just going to keep we'll nominate our president uh, from our party. And uh, that's the way it's going to be. Tyrannical control. This is the way it works. I mean, uh, the Stalins of the world uh, wish they had CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. They wouldn't have to murder so many people. Uh, They could have just controlled them through economic activity and um, so the Biden administration, of course, uh, has thrown its full support behind it because, again, anything that controls the populace uh, is what they want. Anything where they can see what you're doing, anything that they could do to uh, mandate uh, climate change fees and carbon footprint fees and social media scores and all that kind of stuff. Uh, sure, this government's behind it. Um uh, so uh, it's financial freedom, it's privacy. Uh, I don't think uh, anybody could stop it at this point now that you got 81 central banks behind it. Uh, but this is pretty scary stuff. Now, people ask me all the time, well, what about if you have gold and silver? I mean, do you have to turn that in and get a central bank digital currency? Um, uh, or silver coins? Are you able to transact business that way? I mean, is it going to be a black market utilizing uh, metals? I'd I'd like to think that if uh, the government institutes this, that, you know, people are going to run out and buy as much precious metals as they can. But uh, I wouldn't put it past the government to say that uh, we're going to confiscate it because you no longer can have money outside of the digital system. Um, so, uh, on March 15th, the federal reserve announced the fed now service, which will start operating in July. Fed now offers a nationwide quote, instant payment solution for participating financial institutions and their industrial partners. Those using the service can send and receive instant payments at any time of day with full access to the funds immediately. You would think you could do that now. What about wire transfers, ACH deposits, and stuff like that? I guess it's just a little little quicker. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here regarding digital systems? Oh, by the way, you'll never own your money. You won't own it. The government will own it. The, the central bank will own it because you can't take it out. 
you can't put it in your own wallet. I mean, that's the way like what cryptocurrencies and I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to cryptocurrencies, but what I do know about it and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you, uh, Bitcoin aficionados out there, uh, is that you have a wallet and your, your digital currency is there. It's outside of the system. You control it. Well, that's not the way it will be, uh, with digital currency, just the opposite. You'll have to stay in the system. What if, um, and I don't know how this separates from actual bank deposits. I mean, is it the same thing? I don't really know. What if uh, you hear that uh, a bank is having problems? Well, there's no way for you to take your money out. Uh, I guess you could transfer it to another digital account at another bank. But, you know, if the banking system's imploding and you want to take your money out. Oh, by the way, too, I'm hearing anecdotally that people are pulling cash out of banks like crazy right now. Uh, not only are they depositing it in money market funds, uh, and again, who was the first person to tell you that money market funds were the better alternative to the banking system? I was telling you that more than two years ago. That the banking system, you should not have your life savings in any bank and that you should utilize U.S. Treasury money market funds. Well, now everybody's getting that religion. Not only because they're fearful the banks may fail, uh, but, you know, you can get 4.5% risk-free in a U.S. Treasury money market fund. And uh, what is the bank paying you in your savings account? 1% if you're lucky? And then you have to worry about, is that bank healthy? I can't count the number of emails I've had from listeners asking me, is Ocean First good? What about PNC? How about Wells Fargo? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Oh, by the way, uh, Wells Fargo was fined a billion dollars uh, this week uh, for, uh, uh, what's the exact term I want to use? Defrauding their customers. Uh, this is just a long list of uh, uh, crimes that uh, Wells Fargo has been accused of and uh, has settled or been punished about. But people still do bad business with them. It's just unbelievable. Why would you do business with a company or a bank uh, that's just been fined a billion dollars? Uh, I, I don't get it. Um, but uh, this is all coming about. I don't see how it's going to stop. Under the various uh, CBDC proposals floated by the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve, the U.S. CBDC would be programmable, traceable, and designed to promote various left-wing social goals, such as improving financial inclusion, quote-unquote, and quote-unquote equity. There's that word again, equity. And it would also be designed to help with transitioning to net-zero emissions economy and improving environmental justice. It's just another left-wing crazy way of controlling your behavior. Uh, so this is uh, serious, and I don't think the average American um, really understands what this really is uh, and how bad it is. But I think once people find out about it, uh, they're going to be pretty pissed off about it, and they really should be. Another thing that use digital currencies for is, say we have a, a budget deficit uh, of $2 trillion in the country, and uh, the dollar's starting to fall. And we want to lower that budget deficit a little bit. 
uh, we want to strengthen the currency a little bit. So what we're going to do is we're going to impose a 5% negative interest rate on all accounts uh, for the next year. So in other words, instead of paying you interest on, on your digital money, they're going to take 5%. So what's 5% of how much uh, money is in bank accounts right now? Let's round it up to $20 trillion. Well, uh, 5% of that would be a trillion dollars. So they could just take a trillion dollars out of Americans' bank accounts and lower the deficit. And then Biden will come stumbling out saying he lowered the deficit by a trillion dollars last year. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not funny. It really isn't funny because they could do that. They could say, well, you know, hey, or we have to have a one-time surcharge to fund the Ukrainian war. You know, uh, you know, this is, you know, we're fighting the Russians and uh, if we don't fight them now, we'll be fighting them in New York City. So uh, uh, to help the war effort, everybody's going to kick in uh, $500. And we'll come back to you uh, later on. How about these 87,000 IRS agents, right? Uh, they're going to come and say, hey, look, uh, we think you cheated on your taxes. You know, you, you took some deductions here that we don't agree with. Uh, and uh, we want to, uh, we're going to charge you uh, $15,000 in taxes that we believe you owe. And we're going to take the money right now because you have it in that account. So zip, it's gone. All right. We don't have to wait for you to send it in. We're not going to do an installment plan. Uh, you know, we're not going to give you uh, the ability to defend yourself. You could do that later. Uh, if we find out that, you know, you unjustly had your money taken, we'll, we'll, we'll put it back in for you. And I can go on and on and on uh, the, how this could be used in such a negative way. And what would happen to you and your family? What if they just turned it off? What if they said that, you know, as punishment for your alleged crime of uh, being a MAGA Republican or um, uh being pro-life uh, uh, or owning a gun, uh, we're just going to shut you off uh, where you can't, as punishment for two weeks, you cannot buy anything. Or until we see you uh, uh, turn in your gun. Now, you don't have to. We're not going to force you to do that. It's just that if you want to eat, uh, then uh, you'll have to turn in your gun, and then we'll turn your account back on. I mean, whoever's in charge, whoever is the authoritarian in the in, in the government could do all these things. Uh, how about making you to contribute to a political party or a charity that you don't agree with? Well, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood, uh, we need to get more money because abortion is a right. Uh, and these crazy conservatives on the Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe v. Wade. And uh, we, we, we need to fund Planned Parenthood. So uh, even though you're pro-life, uh, annually a $500 will be debited from your account and credited to Planned Parenthood. Like I said, I could spend hours just conjuring up ways that they could, uh, they could do this. So we'll keep an eye on uh, on central bank digital currencies because the more people are informed about it, you know, maybe the more outrage it'll be. You know, we'll see. Now, it may not matter because, you know, most baby boomers have no money. And by the time they retire, there'd be no digital currency in their account anyway. Anyway, uh, this is a disturbing headline. Fewer than 60 percent of baby boomers have retirement accounts. I was stunned. Uh, about that. 
Millions of working-age Americans aged between 56 and 64 are edging closer to retirement without having savings stashed away. Now, I've brought this up to you many times in the last few months that, you know, so many people are, are getting close to retirement, and not only do they don't have any money, they have debt. They have car payments. They have still have a mortgage or a home equity line of credit uh, and uh, little in their 401ks. They're not going to get a pension, most Americans. So uh, this is a pretty dire situation. And, and the reason why is when you see 60% of Americans uh, have a retirement accounts, that means 40, actually 58.1% of American uh, baby boomers generally defined as those born between 1946 and 1964 owned a retirement account. I mean, that's, that's crazy. And that includes 401ks, that includes IRAs, that even includes people get pensions, defined benefit plans. Uh, only 56%. That means 44% of baby boomers, people who are very close to retirement, uh, have a retirement plan. Well, why not? Uh, that That's the question I have. Just 22% say they believe they are currently building a large enough retirement nest egg. Uh, 22% are confident that they're going to have enough money to retire on. Uh, Social Security is going to be the primary um, source of retirement income for 40% of Americans. Well, the average Social Security check is $1,782. That's going to get you a long way, Uh, uh, especially with uh, grocery inflation, inflation and energy, given the fact that many of these baby boomers have debt and are going to have a mortgage in retirement. So that's uh, $21,384 a year. Statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics show that an American household headed by someone aged 65 and up spent an average of $48,791 last year. That's $4,067 a month. Well, I don't think that $1,782 is going to cut it. Meanwhile, households headed by someone between the ages of 65 and 74 spent $53,916 during the same period. Now, if you're 75 or older, that drops to $41,637. I guess when you're younger... You know, you're still going out to eat, you're still traveling, you're still doing things in life. And as you get older, you kind of become a house dweller and you're dealing with health care issues and things like that. So very disturbing uh, uh, and something that I've seen happening uh, in my practice. Uh, People come to me, Lou, what's my retirement going to look like? I said, I hope you like rice and beans because that's what you're going to be eating every day. Or hopefully you like... um, the Costco rotisserie chicken at four ninety nine, best deal in retail. You can't you can't beat it. Uh, I buy a rotisserie chicken almost every time I go to Costco. Even if I have no plans on what to do with it, uh, I buy it. It's four ninety nine. How can I go wrong? Uh, but if you have a family of four, I mean, I think they're five pounds. They're pretty big chickens. Uh, you could feed a family of four for four ninety nine. And believe me, I bet you there's a lot of Americans that do just that. And they're really good. I love the Costco chicken. Uh, 
uh, I make chicken salad out of it. I'll take it apart and make a big thing of chicken salad and eat it over the week. Um, but, uh, you know, people are going to have to do that. Or they're going to have to go in there and get the $1.50 pizza and soda. Uh, uh, and uh, I don't say that jokingly. Um, but it, but it, but it's a case. It really is a case because people are not ready for uh, retirement. And I see uh, a scenario, even in a stable economy, which I don't foresee going forward, even in a moderate inflation economy, which I don't see going forward. When I say going forward, I mean the next decade or so. Uh, I see major financial upheaval. But even without financial upheaval, even in a stable economy with low inflation, uh, uh, I expect that we're going to see poverty, senior poverty, like we've never seen before. And, and that's sad. You know, it's sad enough now that you see um, 80-year-old women working uh, the cash register at your local supermarket. I mean, that, that, that breaks my heart because, you know, they, they don't want to be there. Uh, they're not there because they want to just get out of the house. Well, some of them are, I guess, but most of them are there because they can't eat without being there. Uh, and many Americans are going to have to work into their 70s and 80s. Uh, retirement uh, may not even be a word anymore um, in the future. When nobody's going to retire, you're going to have to work one way or the other um, throughout um, most of your life. All right, what else do we have here? Oh, 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 oh. Well, after three years, three years and God knows how much money, the Dorham report finally came out this week. Uh, on Monday, special counsel John Dorham released his final report concluding that the FBI had no verifiable intelligence when it opened the Crossfire Hurricane investigation into Trump in 2016. If you recall, in July of 2016, Peter Strzok opened a counterintelligence investigation into Trump's camp dubbed Crossfire Hurricane on suspicions, based on no evidence, apparently, that the Russians had infiltrated Trump's circle. Um, the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was based on lies conjured up by Hillary Clinton and a paid-for fake Russian dossier. According to John Durham's report, Hillary Clinton's plan to link Trump's campaign to Russia uh, was briefed by former CIA director John Brennan to Barack Obama and Joe Biden in August of 2016, before the election. They knew about this. And it was all false. And they knew it. Uh, so, it took three years to tell us what we already knew. This isn't new. I want to know, where are the indictments? I mean, where are the indictments? A presidential candidate paid a million dollars for a fake Russian collusion dossier that the FBI knew could not be verified and was most likely false, and then opened up FISA warrants and started the whole Trump-Russia collusion thing. Uh, and uh, where is the, what's the penalty for this? Nobody's going to jail I, because they're Democrats, of course. Durham faulted the FBI and Justice Department for failing to follow their own standards and allowing a probe to persist. 
including the surveillance of an American citizen without basis under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane and related intelligence activities, we concluded the department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law in connection with certain events and activities described in the report. Three years? Are you kidding me to tell us that? Uh, Trump came out and responded. I mean, I don't care if you like Trump or not. I don't care if you hate him. But let's be objective here. Think about what's happened to this guy. From the day he announced he was running for president, the deep state has been after him. Certainly the Democrats, uh, certainly the FBI and the Justice Department, the rhinos, the big club in Washington that didn't want an outsider coming in and draining their swamp. And they, they started the Russian collusion hoax, all fake. Where's the penalty for that? Hillary Clinton paid a million dollars for this fake dossier. What do you think would happen if it was the other way around? Somebody would be going to jail. Not one indictment. Um, so uh, Trump came out, of course, on Truth Social and... Uh, he came out, and this was his uh, his uh, truth. Wow, capital letters, exclamation point. After extensive research, special counsel John Durham concludes the FBI never should have launched a Trump-Russia probe. In other words, the American public was scammed, just as it's being scammed right now by those who don't want to see greatness for America, he said. But this guy, I mean, it just hasn't stopped. Two impeachments. Trump collusion with Russia. He's a Russian stooge. Meanwhile, the Bidens evidence of $10 million of payments from foreign governments uh, and uh, nothing to see here. It's unbelievable. The FBI made no effort to investigate the Clinton campaign's acceptance of an illegal campaign contribution that was made by the FBI's own long-term relationship with uh, Danchenko and Steele. Oh, and uh, Peter Stroke is suing. You know who Peter Stroke is. You know the two lovebirds, him and the other one, Paige, whatever it was, that conspired to stop Trump. Again, what's his penalty? He lost his job, but he got his pension. And now he's suing President Trump for defamation. <laughs> stroke the fame, uh, Trump the fame, Stroke. Uh, meanwhile, Stroke. Uh, tried to undermine his candidacy with a fake investigation. Who defamed who? You can't make this stuff up. It's so freaking crazy. It'll drive you nuts. All right, what else do we have here? The odds uh, that the United States will fall into recession at some point over the next 12 months have risen to a 40-year high, according to the probability model from the New York Federal Reserve. The probability that the country will enter a recession within the next year has risen to 68.2%, according to the New York Federal Reserve, which is the highest level since 1982. Now, I was 22 in 1982, and I remember the economy was pretty bad. Uh, we were in a pretty bad recession then. Uh, and I, it's 100% that we're going to go into a recession. 100%. If we're not there already. 
the government announced that the GDP for the first quarter, I think it was 1.1%. And you know that's fudged, as every government statistic is. Uh, it's probably more like down three. Uh, so we are most likely in a recession now. And if we're not, we surely will be. Um, and we have an inverted yield curve. Uh, we have the Fed raising interest rates. We got inflation at 40 years high. And uh, we look at the, um, the spread between a three-month and a 10-year Treasury yield, uh, which is huge right now. You can get much more interest on a three-month Treasury bill than you can on a 10-year Treasury bond. And you only see this prior to recessions or in recessions. Now, according, about, uh, according to surveys, um, pessimism about the economy hit a record high amid rampant price inflation, rising interest rates, and growing recession concerns, according to the latest CNBC All-America Economic Survey. The survey showed that 69% of U.S. adults have negative views about the current economic landscape, which is the highest figure since the survey began 17 years ago. Uh, nope, uh, I'm recording this on uh, Tuesday, May 16th. It's airing on uh, Sunday the 21st. As of today, there's no movement in uh, the debt ceiling discussion. Uh, it looks like this is going to go down right to the end. Uh, and it looks like the Biden administration uh, is hell-bent on having a default. I think they believe that that benefits them politically, that they could say that, look at the Republicans. You know, they... they, they uh, wouldn't to give us a clean debt ceiling increase and it's their fault. And now uh, uh, the dollar's crashing, the stock market's crashing. We're in a recession now. I mean, this has never happened before. I mean, usually uh, the Republicans fold like a cheap suit. And I bet you they fold again. I mean, they have a history of doing this. The only difference now is that we have this 20, whatever it is, Freedom Caucus you know, that ran on fiscal responsibility and they are not going to budge, they say, on spending cuts. Now, the House did pass narrowly uh, a budget that increases the spending on each department by 1% a year. Every single Democrat voted against it and every single Democrat in the Senate's going to vote against it. Not one Democrat out of what? Almost 300 congressmen and senators believe that cutting spending is a good thing. Well, not one Democrat in the House believe uh, not uh, having abortions in nine months was a good thing. Every single Democrat in the House voted against uh, a Republican uh, bill to limit when an abortion could be done. But day of birth is fine with every single Democrat in the House. You know, I said many times, a lot of people are saying this, is that, you know, there's a battle of good and evil in the world. And I, I think a lot of us feel that right now. And right now, evil's winning. It's winning. I mean, evil is now institutionalized. Uh, and it's institutionalized in the form of just policies that the government is for. Open borders letting everybody in. Abortion on demand to the last moment. Or even... Minutes after birth, uh, this whole gender craziness where, you know, we're teaching our children that maybe they're binary, non-binary. 
they're maybe maybe they really are a girl even though they have a penis uh what is a woman it's a woman is what a person identifies as not as their chromosomes not as their genitalia uh it's whatever they they do and think about this women in sports you know uh transgender women in sports there's no such thing as a transgender woman in my opinion there's only a man dressing like a girl uh uh they used to be called transvestites not transgender um but now they're going to the extent of the hormones and surgery in some cases and, and whatnot. This is all evil. I mean, this is the battle that's going on right now. Now, I think good's going to win in the end because good almost always does. And I think God is a much more powerful entity than Satan. But let me tell you, the gates of hell have been unleashed. And we all know it. Uh I've seen, you see evil in the world in so many, so many ways. How about this one? After school, Satan clubs are hot, hot, hot. Following a major legal victory in the free speech department, after school, Satan clubs are picking up steam. Launched in 2020 and promptly opposed by most parents. Most parents? Uh, I like a parent out there to email me at lewitthefinancialphysician.com and tell me if you're for after school Satan clubs. Uh, when I was in school, I don't think there was an after school Satan club. I'm sorry. I, I just don't recall one. But it's all the rage right now. Uh, but all, but most parents oppose it. Most. Is most mean 51% and 49% are for it? Uh, or is it like 99.9% of parents oppose it? Uh and uh, 1% is for it. Uh, See, so you can use words, uh, and they can mean many things, right? Last Monday, the Satanic Temple and the ACLU scored a legal victory over in the after the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania ruled against the Northampton County School District, which banned the club from meeting on its grounds. Well, at least good for them that they banned it. I bet you many school districts in the United States would more than welcome it. Quote, in the victory for free speech and religious freedom, a federal court has ruled that the Saucon Valley School District must allow the after-school state and club to meet in district facilities. Uh, unbelievable. Satanic. This is what we're encouraging our children to do. I'm telling you, I would never send my kid. I would work four jobs to send my kids to private school. Four jobs. Before I'd send my kids to these indoctrination camps, masquerading as uh, education uh, institutions, uh, it's just unbelievable. You know, it's really, really terrible. Um, now, there's a PR campaign. It says the Satanic Group isn't really evil. Uh, listen to their PR. This is a sight to behold. Listen to this. Founded in 2014, the organization claims to encourage benevolence and empathy. Quote. Reject tyrannical authority and say that members should use practical common sense and stand up for justice. They say that if those interested, if they're trying to sell their soul or get rich or join the Illuminati, they should look elsewhere because that's not what we do. We're definitely not interested in having children identify as Satanists. Said Satanist Rose Bastet, who has been involved in a satanic temple for four years. 
and is one of the after-school Satan Club volunteers at B.M. Williams Primary in Chesapeake, Virginia. Primary, meaning first through eighth grade. Bassett spearheaded the effort to get the club into the school in October 2020, a process that took a long time because the school was giving us the runaround. They were in the background looking for any way they could prevent us from meeting. Well, you think so? Uh, according to Bastet, doesn't it sound like Baphomet, right? <laughs> Baphomet, Bastet. Oh, I wonder if that's a made-up name. Satan Club is just teaching kids about nature and whatnot. One, one of our meetings a couple of months ago, we learned about Virginia native bats. The last meeting, we had one of parents in the club volunteer to bring in a bunch of bones and fossils that she said her and her husband found in Virginia. That said, uh, the curriculum could change this fall as the club seeks to integrate the seven tenets of the Satanic Temple, which include compassion and empathy toward all creatures in accordance with reason, and that belief should confer, conform to one's best scientific knowledge of the world. One should Take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's belief. We just came out with a book that is like a children's version. Or should I say a very sweet way to interpret the tenets in a very understanding way that children should understand. We have a lot of big plans for school next year. I bet they do. Would you send your child to an after-school Satan club? If you would, uh, you're one of the evil people, at least from the gates of hell that I'm talking about. It's just one thing after the other. The world's gone mad, my friends. It really has gone mad. And uh, I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. Lots of crazy things happening. Uh, Let's take a break. Uh, The rest of the program, I have the best of Lou, uh, as this is a recorded program, as I'm in Europe for a vacation. Uh, next week we'll also have, uh, we'll have some new stuff in the beginning of the program and then we'll have uh, some best of loose segments uh, next week as well. We'll be back live uh, with you uh, on uh, June 3rd, Sunday, June 3rd. Uh, and I look forward to uh, getting away for a couple of weeks uh, and taking a break from the radio program. And uh, uh, my wife and I are going to Rome for a couple of days and then taking a 10 day cruise to Greece. And uh, we've never been to Greece and, uh, I'm looking forward to that, uh, and uh, I'm sure after you know Sunday I'll be getting all kinds of nervous because I'm not doing my show. Uh, but you'll still have a semi-fresh show uh, these last these two weeks uh, with some fresh material, and then the rest recorded. All right, uh, don't go anywhere. I'll be right back after this break. I'm Luz Katigna, certified financial planner, author, president of AFM Investments, and the host of The Financial Physician, heard each Sunday morning, 7 to 9, right here on 92.7 WOBM, or anytime at thefinancialphysician.com. Don't let interest rates, inflation, and market volatility keep you awake at night. Come to my Tom's River office for a no-obligation, professional diagnosis of your financial health. I'll review your investments, income taxes, and retirement plan. I'll suggest a comprehensive financial and estate plan that will improve your financial health, and most importantly, lower your 
financial risk during these uncertain times. If you are retired or planning to retire, I will show you strategies designed to increase your income and protect your estate from nursing home costs. Call us at 732-905-8100 and get on the road to a healthy financial future. That's 732-905-8100. Join me Sunday mornings, 7 to 9, for The Financial Physician right here on 92.7 WOBM or listen to the podcast at thefinancialphysician.com. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company, member of FINRA and SIPC, registered investment advisory service through Fortitude Advisory Group. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. If you're a small business, your expertise is taking care of customers. Our expertise is saving you time and money. We're the state's New Jersey Business Action Center, NJ Back. Get answers about government resources that can help you grow and thrive. From how to be a vendor with government to your business to finding capital. We've got your back at the back. Call us at 1-800-JERSEY-7. That's 1-800-JERSEY-7. This message sponsored by the New Jersey Business Action Center, the New Jersey Broadcasters Association, and this station. Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless, Mark could train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did. The following is a paid program. Views contained within do not necessarily reflect those of the staff management or sponsors of Town Square Media. Here's Luz Katigna. We talk about things on this program that you're not going to hear elsewhere. Either people don't have the guts to talk about it uh, uh, or too politically correct, uh, uh, which I'm not. Uh, I'll talk about anything on this program. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, what I talk about on this program is true. I have articles, I have d- data, I got statistics to back almost everything up I talk about here on the program. And, uh, but we talk about it. I was, uh, and then we put, we put videos of this show, either the opening monologue or a subject that I talk about. We put it on YouTube. And uh, last week, I w- my YouTube channel was shut down for a week because of something I said on a program January of 2021. How YouTube police found it now, I don't know. But they didn't allow me uh, for a week to upload a video because I questioned in January 2021 the validity of the 2020 presidential election. Uh, you can't do that on YouTube, by the way. You know, they stole the election. Now you can't talk about it. Shh, got away with it. Shh. The big lie, they called it, right? 
Every time you talk about Trump talking about the election or anything, uh, what, what is the words they always use? Um, unfounded, unfounded claims of election fraud. Unfounded. Meanwhile, you see ballot stuffing. Watch 2,000 Mules. If you haven't seen that, look it up, find it, pay for it, whatever. Watch that. If you watch 2,000 Mules, I want anybody who watches it to debate me that there was no voter, voter fraud and ballot stuffing. It happened all across the country. There was a game plan to keep Trump from being president again. And it was executed flawlessly. How, how does... How do, how, how do you shut down counting ballots in six swing states with Trump way ahead at midnight? Has that ever happened in an election before? I don't know. I haven't. Not in my recollection ever. Not in one state, let alone six swing states at one time, so they could figure out how to get the ballots that they need to overcome uh, what was a trouncing of Joe Biden. Anyway. But you can't talk about that. So this is being filmed right now. This will go on YouTube probably, and they'll shut me down again, maybe permanently. Anyway, but we do talk about things on this show that you're not going to hear elsewhere. And we've been doing it for 21 years. And I got to give the station credit. They, they never once said to me, Lou, you know, tone it down. You know, you, you're ruffling some feathers out there because I'm sure I do. If you're a regular listener to the program, I'm sure you're like-minded. Uh, you're not going to listen to this program if you don't think the way I do. But we live in, uh, in Ocean and uh, Monmouth counties here, uh, probably one of the more conservative areas of the state of New Jersey, the liberal blue state of New Jersey. So uh, we'll continue as long as we can to bring you the facts, not propaganda. So we appreciate you sharing uh, the podcast with friends and families. Put it on your social media. Check this guy out. Listen to what he has to say. You're not going to hear it elsewhere. All right, let's talk uh, something that people don't like to talk about. Families need to discuss it. uh, But we have to uh, come to grips with long-term care issues. Uh, We're seeing more and more people now, obviously, entering retirement. Uh, the demographics of the baby boomers are such that many of them are, are now over 65 uh, and, and 10,000 a day are moving into that category, uh, as well as people moving into 75 and 85. And about 70 percent of Americans who reach age 65 are going to need long term care sometime during the remaining years. Now, long-term care could be a lot of different things. It could be just somebody in your family that comes over and takes care of you and cleans the house and makes sure you take your medicine and feed you and maybe brings over some food. Uh, maybe uh, it is uh, 25% are going to need more than two years of paid care. We have to pay professionals, whether it's to come to your home or you need assisted living or you need nursing homes. And 15% of those 65 and older are going to need nursing home care. Now, if you look at it, the nursing home situation, uh, the numbers are better than you would think because, you know, if only 15% of people 65 and older are ever going to need step into a nursing home, that's pretty good. That's because they have other options. Now, the cost of long-term care, obviously, it's variable depending on the type of care you get. 
You know, it's a lot cheaper to have somebody come in your house a few hours a day uh, to, to, to help you bathe and stuff like that. Uh, or it's a little more expensive to have a living, obviously. Uh, it's more expensive than to have assisted living. And it's certainly the most expensive to have skilled nursing care, nursing home. And there's three, three different ways we pay for this. How is it paid for? It's expensive. Nursing homes here in New Jersey are 12000 a month. A living is going to be about sixty to seventy thousand a year. So who? How is this paid for? It's so expensive. Where does the money come from? Well, there's three sources: your own money, which is really the first level, is going to be your own money. You know, there's a misconception that most Americans, majority of Americans, believe Medicare would pay for your long-term care. It doesn't. The only time Medicare pays for long-term care is if you go from a hospital to a rehab nursing home facility, they'll pay 90 days. Otherwise, they're paying nothing. So it's going to be on you. So you're going to pay for it. Long-term health care insurance could pay for it. We'll talk about that in a second. Or Medicaid, state welfare. Actually, Medicaid is the biggest, the largest payer of nursing homes. So we got to plan for this stuff in advance. And for most of us, long-term care is not something that, that happens overnight. We can see it coming. Health declines, memory declines, and we, we see it coming. Uh, in my practice as, as, as a certified financial planner, next year, uh, I'll be 40 years as a financial advisor. My firm that I founded with my partner, Martin, uh, is, is 35 years old. And a lot of my client base, uh, most of my client base is retired. And many of them have been with me for 20 years, 25 years, even 30 years. I have some clients that have been with me. And now they are entering the end stages of their life. So long-term care planning, end-of-life planning is a big part of what I do now. And I could see it coming with our clients. We have these discussions on our annual meetings. How's your health? You know, a lot of people don't understand that a financial planner is going to ask a a good financial planner, a certified financial planner is going to ask you a lot of questions that are not financial related, but they are in, in, in a way. How's your health? How's your memory? You know, these may seem like awkward questions to uh, uh, talk to your clients about, but I do. Because it goes into the financial planning of long-term care. Because there's two issues that we have to deal with. The quality of the care, how do we get mom the best care that she needs at the end of her life? And then there's the financial aspect of it. How do we protect the estate? All right, top of the hour. My name is Luce Katigna. Don't go away. (laughs) 
It's time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions, because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. So let's talk today, and the first hour we tend to talk financial issues, so I want to talk about today... Uh, and uh, an issue uh, that we're all dealing with if we're in our 50s and 60s, uh, and that's dealing with our parents and their aging process. And what we're dealing with really is our parents going from being independent to dependency. All right. It's just the opposite of when you're a child. You're, you're dependent and then you get older and you become independent for most of your life. And then you go the other way. So many of us are taking care of our parents. As they age, when we got to deal with them as they pass away, and then we have a our mother or father who's left alone, and we got to deal with them, and then we have generational wealth transfer. There's a lot of things, and it's very, very burdensome. It's very stressful for children to deal with this. And if you're caring for your aging parents, you know it takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of patience to do that. And uh, we have the aging of America, the baby boomers now, you know, they're, 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 they're entering retirement, they're exiting retirement through passing away. And, uh, and it's very, very serious stuff because we have to make sure everything is right. And as a certified financial planner who deals mainly with seniors, uh, my, my practice is 35, 36 years old this year. Um, many of my clients have been with me 20, 30 years, and uh, a large portion of my client base now is at the end of their lives. So we do a lot of end-of-life planning, and I deal with that with my clients, my clients' children, uh, and so forth. So it's a big issue, and people make a lot of mistakes during this time. So yeah, I want to address some of the considerations that you need to do if you are – uh, look, if, if you're married and you're older and you still have it together and, you know, you should be doing this stuff, too. But I'm talking mainly for children. You know, when your parents start getting older in their 80s and they start going downhill, especially when there's only one left, it takes a child, uh, a, a child that lives close by to get involved and to take care of things and make sure things are done right. And let's talk about some of the first things you need to do. And these are proper legal documents must be in place. So you want to help your parents put these proper legal documents in place. And what are we talking about? We're talking about, and I'll go over these in a second, power of attorney, health care proxies, living wills, wills, burial arrangements. And, uh, and then there's a whole other subject of long-term health care that we may have to deal with. So let's talk about some of these documents that you're going to want to have in place for an aging parent. Now, this is more important what I'm talking about now when there's only one parent left. When there's two parents left, it's, it's a lot less. They take care of things together. Uh, if one of them passes away, everything goes to the other one. Uh, you know, the, uh, a spouse has certain rights, you know, as far as making decisions for their spouse and so forth. So it's really more important when just mom is left or just dad is left that we make sure these things are in place. So the first thing is a power of attorney. So what is this? And a lot of people, they think they know what it is, but they really don't. 
because I know I see these people. They come to me and think that my mother passed, so I'm the power of attorney, so I'll be able to pay her bills after she died. No. But a power of attorney is also called an attorney, in fact. It's a way that you can have somebody else step in and handle your financial issues if you can't do it yourself. And there are generally two types of powers of attorney. There's something called a springing power of attorney, like a spring. And then there's a durable power of attorney. What's the difference? Well, a springing power of attorney is a power of attorney that is not valid. Someone can't use it unless it springs into effect at your disability, your inability to take care of yourself. And these are kind of rare. I don't see them used very much anymore. Now we see mostly durable power of attorney. A durable power of attorney is durable, meaning it becomes effective immediately upon your signature, regardless of future events. So if you sign a power of attorney today, you're healthy and everything else, that person who you give that power to can act as you financially. They could do anything financially you do unless you restrict it within the power of attorney itself. But a typical durable power of attorney makes that person you as far as financial issues go. They could walk into a bank account. They could walk into a bank and show the power of attorney and basically withdraw all your money. They could transact stock and bond transactions in your investment portfolio. They can gift themselves money or gift money to anybody they want. They could change the deed on your house. The only thing they can't do is change your will and sign it as you. All right. That they can't do. But power of attorney is very, quote unquote, powerful. And it can be easily abused. But it really is powerful in a good way when you can't no longer. Many older people, they forget to pay their bills. And then before you know it, the electric bill is three months behind, and they're going to come and shut it off on Thursday. Then you get a phone call from mom. I got this pink uh, bill in the mail. They're going to shut off my electric. I don't know why. Well, because you didn't pay a bill in three months. Well, you could be paying those bills. You could be writing checks. And you would sign it, your name, as POA. And the bank knows that because you already brought the power of attorney to the bank They have it on file, they have your signature on file, and they know to negotiate that check because you have that power of attorney. Now, one thing you don't want to do with a a power of attorney is to name more than one person. And I'll tell you why. You know, a lot of people say, I just don't want to, I don't want to slight, I have three kids, I don't want to slight one by making one look more important than the other. Or maybe the other two are, are, are not going to trust the brother because he has the power of attorney. He's going to steal mom's money. Well, if there's any concern about that in the first place, you should never give a power of attorney to anybody in your family that you don't trust 100% to do the right thing. But the thing is, when you have multiple powers of attorney, it's very burdensome because you need multiple signatures on every check, uh, anything that that power of attorney does. It, it kind of nullifies the convenience of having somebody in your family take care of your financial issues. And what if uh, your children aren't local? You know, what are you going to do? You know, send a check across the country so your brother can sign it uh, so you could pay mom's electric bill. Right. Find who is most confident in your family to handle this for you. And it doesn't even have to be a family member. It could be a best friend, a trusted aunt or uncle or nephew. It doesn't have to be. uh, It could be anybody. Uh, But you want a power of attorney when your health starts to decline. Now, 
I tell people once they get into their 60s. Now, I've had a power of attorney with my spouse since I was 25. You know, I mean, we that was part of our estate planning package. And but the power of attorney with spouses rarely comes into to, to necessity because usually your checking account is joint account. So either one of you can sign it. Uh, you really don't need a power of attorney. But, I, you know, most people do have a power of attorney with their spouse, especially as they get older. But rarely is it necessary. But when you're single, you know, and you're 80 years old, that's when it becomes much more of a necessity. But, you know, the earlier you get this, the better. I mean, uh, it, you know, what if you have a, a sudden illness like a stroke or something like that? You know, now you're not competent. Now you can't enter into the power of attorney situation because you're not competent. Just when you need the power of attorney to work, you can't enter into one unless you are competent and you could sign something and everything else, and you may, you may be. But it's important as part of a, an estate planning package, it, you know, there's always three things that you should have. The will, the power of attorney, and the health care directive, the living will. And we'll go over those other things in a second. But uh, a power of attorney is very, very, very important to have, especially as your health health is declining, and especially if you're an older single person. And uh, make sure that you uh, you give that power of attorney to the right person. I've seen power of attorneys misused, uh, abused, and outright. And you know what? <laughs> You give a power, you have three children, you give a power attorney to one child, and that child isn't the right one to do it. Uh, a, they're going to mismanage your finances. And, you know, the reason why you got the power of attorney is so your finances would be smooth when you can't do it. So you want to make sure that this person's competent and will make sure your bills are paid on time and everything else. You want to make sure that that person is ethical and won't start abusing the power of attorney for their benefit. I have a client that has a son. He was a power of attorney over his uh, her accounts, and uh, I managed a significant amount of money for her. She has uh, Alzheimer's. He comes in with the power of attorney. We have to honor that power of attorney. We file it with our brokerage firm, and he starts calling my assistant, and he starts taking out $5,000 at a time. And uh, she never took that kind of money out. But it would go to her checking account. But he had power of attorney over the checking account. And he also, because he had power of attorney, was able to get a debit card on that account. And he was basically living off his mother's money. Going out to dinner, using the credit card, uh, the debit card, writing checks to himself, paying his own rent. Now, does he have a right to do that? Yes. Is it illegal? No. And uh, this person is the only child, so he feels that, well, it's my money anyway, because when she dies, I'm going to get it all. But there's other complications to that, because what if she needs nursing home care? They're going to look back five years of all the transfers of money, and and all that money he's spending is a gift to him. She might not qualify for, for Medicaid when she runs out of money because of all these transfers. And then what happens to her? Power of attorney could be extremely, extremely effective, or it could be extremely damaging. Uh, and in this case, it's damaging. Now, finally, another family member saw what was happening and got the mother to revoke the power of attorney. And that's another thing, too. These are revocable. You, you know, as long as you're competent, you can turn it off. You can name somebody else if you want.
Let's talk about a living will. It's also called a health care directive. It's called a health care proxy. And in this document, A, you delineate what you want done to you under certain circumstances, including do not resuscitate, uh, no food, no food tubes in me. And, you know, a lot of people in advanced age and advanced disease, they don't want these life uh, sustaining things done to them. They're tired. You know, they want, don't want to go through it anymore. It's, you know, they're ready for death. And they don't want any extraordinary measures. And you, 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 you write that down in a health care directive. And you also name a health care proxy or, a power, or, or an attorney, in fact, a health care attorney. This person would make decisions for you if you can't make them yourself. And be careful who you give that to. That's a very, very powerful document, too, right? Uh, they could pull the plug on you, you know. And so, uh, and I've seen many families argue about this. I've, I've seen family has three children. One child has the health care proxy. Uh, it's towards the end of a mom's life. She's got cancer or whatever. Uh, the health care proxy wants to turn off life support. And the other two brothers don't want to. Well, the one who has the the, the healthcare proxy, they're the ones going to make that decision. Now, when my father passed away, um, you know, he my mother died first, so he was her proxy. He made the decisions for her. You know, usually it's the spouse that does this, right? But when he was a widower, my mother died first. I was his healthcare proxy, so I had to make the decision. Now I have five brothers and sisters. Right now, thankfully, we were all on the same page towards the end. It was obvious that, you know, he he was not going to survive his cancer. Uh, and we all I did consult with my whole family. You know, we came to a consensus, but I didn't have to. I could have said, you know what, Dad, we're, we're turning everything off. We're bringing you home, which is what I did do. You know, if, but, you know, I consulted with my brothers and sisters. We have a close family. I wasn't going to keep them out of that 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 decision making process, but I didn't have to. Very important document, uh, especially if your health is declining, to have one of those. But again, you could have a massive stroke out of nowhere, and you'll be glad you have that health care. Now, when you go into the hospital, you have any procedures done, they always ask you, do you have a living will? It's also called a living will, right? Uh, and you give them a copy of that. It's important to have. Everybody should have it. All right, and then you have um, the will. Of course the will's important. We all know we have it. You'd be surprised how many people don't have one. I have clients that are 70-something years old that don't have a will. It just blows my mind that something as simple as that. And they have assets. If anybody's listening to me and you don't have a will, I don't care what age you are. This week, it should be your uh, your goal to get on the phone, set up an appointment, and, and a lot of people don't have a will because they don't want to go go to an attorney and spend money for it. You could write a will on a napkin. I mean, I'm not saying you should, but, you know, you, you could. Also, there's, there's plenty of templates you can get online for almost nothing. Legal Zoom. You just, just Google will template. You could do a, a, um, a living will online and print it out. Just make sure that it's witnessed properly. 
Every state has different rules on how many signatures have to witness it and so forth. So, you know, get to understand your state's laws. Uh, very easy. Power of attorney, get online too. So I'm sorry, lawyers out there that make a lot of, a lot of money off people doing estate planning for people and doing these documents. It takes, it takes the attorney hardly any amount of time. It's all a template on a computer, plugs in certain things. And most people's wills are pretty simple. Most people's will say, I name my son, Matthew, as my executor. All my assets of my residual estate are split equally amongst my three children. If one of my children predeceases me, either his portion goes to his family or his portion goes to the surviving brothers and sisters. That's really basically it. Right? It's not hard to do. Like I said, you could just go on a word processor and type it up. Me being of Simon Mountain body, you know, do hereby name, blah, 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 as my executor. My residual estate should be split this way. Uh, very, very easy to do. I did my own will on one of these. I think it was LegalZoom. But there's a lot of different websites that go there. It's not 40 bucks. You, you get your will done. The thing is, wills can be changed. Now, if you have a more complicated estate, you got a business, you have a lot of real estate, a lot of securities, maybe you could afford to spend $700 on an attorney to make sure that everything is exactly the way it should be. Um, But you don't have to. So if you are one of these people listening to me today that don't have these documents, especially if you're older, or if your parents don't have them and you're taking care of your parents and you're going to be the one to, to, to walk them through this process of going from uh, being independent to being totally dependent, you got to make sure that these documents are obtained. Now you also have to look at, you know, all right, what's the cost going to be, you know, at the end of my parents' life? What is it going to cost to get them over the finish line? And many times we don't know that because we don't know what the long-term health care costs would be. But that's the main issue. And another important thing that you need to know when you're putting together your will, all assets are not equal. What do I mean by all assets are not equal? If I inherit a $250,000 home, well, let's not even say home. Let's say savings account. A regular savings account, you got 250000 in there, uh, and I'm going to inherit that savings account, and you say, well, I have a $250,000 IRA, uh, my other son will inherit that. Those are not equal assets. The savings account is after-tax money, where the IRA is taxable to that beneficiary. So if 25% of it's going to the government, then you're not getting the same inheritance. Also, um, also you got to look at appreciated property. You got to look at, at all different kinds of things. Is there capital gains? Do I gift this stuff before I die? You know, there's all kinds of complications here. Now, when you're talking about parental care, and if they don't really have that much funding for this, and you're going to have somebody coming in to take care of her or clean the house or whatever. How much of this are you willing to shoulder? How much of this are you willing to pay? 
Have you had a conversation with your spouse about this? What that amount will be? And if you have siblings, how much will they contribute? And the one thing I've learned in my career is that taking care of mom is not equally shared by the children. Not at all. Right? Uh, Maybe uh, the brother, he's too busy with his business. You know, he's not available. Or maybe the one sibling lives in California. A mom lives here in New Jersey. But your daughter lives in New Jersey, and she's the one there every day, bringing your food, taking care of you, cleaning your house. And if you, you are so far disabled, doing other unseemly things that are no fun to deal with your parent. So who's going to shoulder this burden? And these are, these are questions that really need to be asked amongst the family. And then you also have to do uh, estate preservation planning. What do I mean by that? Well, estate preservation planning simply means how do we protect this estate? How do, how do we protect it from going away with long-term health care costs? Do we start gifting property? Do we start gifting assets? How long do we have to do that in advance? Is five years in New Jersey. Other states are different. See the burden on that one child if, he, if that's the child that's taking care of all these things? But somebody has to drive the car. And this is um, and there's also an emotional side to this. You know, you know, my brother is in California. He doesn't see mom every day like I see her deteriorating. The burden's on me. The stress is on me. After work, I have to run over there and make sure she's okay. He's not worrying about it. So it can take an incredibly emotional toll um, and also a financial toll on one of the children. So so planning for your parents' death, um, many of us have done it. I, I've gone through it. I, I help my clients. And, and one of the things that, that's most important is communication. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how few families have a meeting as mom is aging. Again, this is not as important when both mom and dad are alive, but when you have one left, it's very important to do this planning. Uh, families should have meetings. It doesn't have to be in face nowadays between Zoom and FaceTime and all that stuff. We could have that meeting uh, and discuss all these issues. And even though one person may have the power of attorney, one person, the same person may have the, the, the living will power of attorney. It's great if you can have a family consensus and talk about these issues and come to a, um, a consensus on how to go forward, whether it's financially, whether it's health care, uh, whether it's uh, uh, um, anything else in her life or his life. But we know families are dysfunctional. <laughs> Trust me on this one. Uh, not that mine is, but... Uh, you wouldn't believe what I deal with in my practice with families and the dysfunction we need between the families. It's unbelievable. Uh, and like I said, I, I deal with this stuff every day. And sometimes you have to keep one sibling out of the decision-making process because they're nothing but a problem. And uh, that's the last person that you'd want um, to have power of attorney or have any control over your parent. And a lot of contention, uh, you know, at the end of your parents' life, uh, a lot of families disintegrate over these issues. 
lack of trust, feeling that you're stealing your money, who gets what, who makes decisions for mom. Uh, I don't want her to go into a nursing home because that's going to eat up my inheritance. So, you know, why don't you take care of her, take her in your house? I mean, it's all kinds of things that go on. But the most important thing is the most responsible, the most local person. This is ideal. Uh, it should take care of the stuff and be the power of attorney and make sure these documents are taken care of. Uh, and unfortunately, it's a burden, uh, but it's a burden um, that we can't avoid. Time for a break. No phone calls today because we have a recorded show. My name's Lou Scatigna. Don't go away. I'm Lou Scatigna, certified financial planner, author, president of AFM Investments, and the host of The Financial Physician. Heard each Sunday morning, 7 to 9, right here on 92.7 WOBM, or anytime at thefinancialphysician.com. Don't let interest rates, inflation, and market volatility keep you awake at night. Come to my Tom's River office for a no-obligation professional diagnosis of your financial health. I'll review your investments, income taxes, and retirement plan. I'll suggest a comprehensive financial and estate plan that will improve your financial health and, most importantly, lower your financial risk during these uncertain times. If you are retired or plan to retire, I will show you strategies designed to increase your income and protect your estate from nursing home costs. Call us at 732-905-8100 and get on the road to a healthy financial future. That's 732-905-8100. Join me Sunday morning, 7 to 9 for The Financial Physician right here on 92.7 WOBM or listen to the podcast at thefinancialphysician.com. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company, member of FINRA and SIPC, registered investment advisory service to afford Advisory Group. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer. Top quality work at the most affordable rates. If you're a small business, your expertise is taking care of customers. Our expertise is saving you time and money. We're the state's New Jersey Business Action Center, NJ Back. Get answers about government resources that can help you grow and thrive. From how to be a vendor with government to your business to finding capital. We've got your back at the back. Call us at 1-800-JERSEY-7. That's 1-800-JERSEY-7. This message sponsored by the New Jersey Business Action Center, the New Jersey Broadcasters Association, and this station. Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless, Mark could train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did. The following is a paid program. Views contained within do not necessarily reflect those of the staff management or sponsors of Town Square Media. Here's Luz Katigna. All right, welcome back. If you missed any of the show, just go to thefinancialphysician.com where we have the podcast of this program. 
Paul will have it up right after the show is over. Today's a very special pre-recorded show. We have great topics ahead of you uh, today. This is the best topics, financial topics we talked about over the course of the year. Let's start off the program uh, talking about the Federal Reserve. There's a lot of talk about the Federal Reserve now because they're raising interest rates. They caused inflation. Now they're trying to battle inflation. And they got a lot of power. And a lot of people are starting to realize the power that the Federal Reserve has over us. And the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the country. Now, Thomas Jefferson was adamant about having a central bank against it. He thought it would give too much power to unelected people. And boy, was he right. He was right. So what is the Federal Reserve? I want to spend some time and I want to educate you on what it is, how it works, how I believe it's unconstitutional, and the power it has over us and and what they're doing now and what I think they're going to continue to do. So uh, the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States, also known as the Fed in short, and it is in charge of a number of things. Monetary policy. What's monetary policy? Monetary policy is interest rates. They control what's called the federal funds rate, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, They uh, supervise and regulate the banking system. Uh, They regulate uh, financial institutions. They try to ensure the stability of financial markets. But they have a dual mandate. There's something called the dual mandate. What's their job? Well, their main job is to control inflation and to uh, have maximum employment. And they do that through their monetary policy, which gives them a lot of power. So say the economy is bad. We're in a recession. Things aren't going good. Well, typically, the Federal Reserve would lower interest rates. By lowering interest rates, that's an accommodated policy, they call it. There's a lot of terms you'll hear on financial news and stuff. Uh, They're accommodative. They're restrictive. Accommodative means they're keeping interest rates low. They're printing money. There's a lot of money flowing around. Businesses are expanding. They're hiring people. People are buying homes because mortgage rates are low. uh, And it stimulates economic growth. That's what lowering interest rates does. Now, the opposite is true. When you have too much economic growth, you have too low unemployment, you have inflation. And also quantitative easing, which is another thing we'll get into in a second. So, you know, they they, they put the pedal to the metal for a very long time. After the crisis of 2008, they brought interest rates to zero. And they kept it there until 2019, 2018, 2019. They started raising rates. COVID hit. They reversed themselves. They brought it back down to zero for the longest time. They printed $120 billion a month. They financed uh, the government's stimulus packages, trillions and trillions of dollars. And I was warning on this program two years ago that a major inflation problem was coming. And I didn't say that because I'm a genius. You don't have to be a genius to know that. What you have to do is be a historian and read economic history. You can't create money out of thin air to the proportions that we did without the equal amount of economic growth. If you do that, it results in inflation. 
Every time. And that's the thing that's so mind-numbing about this, is that this inflation was avoidable. Easily avoidable. The Fed knew that what they were doing. Now, you would think uh, of any institution, the Federal Reserve has access to the best economists and everything else that know this stuff. But maybe there was no choice at the time. So they create this monster inflation that we haven't seen in 50 years. And now they got to slay this monster. And the way they slay it is by raising interest rates and destroying the economy, destroying demand, destroying housing prices, destroying people's ability to make a living. And they're hell-bent on, com- uh, on continuing that. So there's three entities that make up the Federal Reserve. First of all, the Federal Reserve came into effect in 1913 uh, through the Federal Reserve Act. Now, before the Federal Reserve, we had many, many financial crashes. Bank, banks collapsing. There was a big, um, a big uh, crash in 1907. It was called the Bank Panic of 1907. Uh, where a major financial institution on Wall Street failed, kind of like Lehman Brothers, and uh, and the system was imploding. People were running on banks. There was no central bank to inject money into the system. So J.P. Morgan, the J.P. Morgan, not the bank, it was his bank, but J.P. Morgan himself uh, uh, got uh, some very rich billionaires and himself to f- to put money into the system to save it. And he did. Because at that point, uh, uh, the economy is ready to crash uh, and we were going into a depression. So J.P. Morgan was able to to bring um, all these big guys to his mansion and command all their capital to flood the system and bail the banks out. And uh, he continued to do so until the panic passed. Now, I'm sure he profited very wisely, very nicely from it. Uh, He probably owned all the shares in these banks that he just bailed out. So uh, there was concern that, well, maybe the United States needs a central bank. Now, this is not the first. The Fed was not the first central bank the United States had. We tried it with the National Bank of the United States, uh, and, and, and that lasted like 10 years, and then that had to be shut down. It wasn't working. Um, But the Federal Reserve Act, um, signed into law by President Woodrow Wilson, uh, gave the 12 Federal Reserve Banks the ability to print money and ensure economic stability. Now, how did this come about? Well, it came about because the banks who own the Federal Reserve backed Woodrow Wilson. They knew that he was for this, and they funded him. And... They knew that once he won, that he would sign this. Now, um, Senator Nelson Aldrich, which was the maternal uh, uh, grandfather of the Rockefellers, uh, he was a senator, and and he got other senators. He brought them together. You heard about the creature from Jekyll Island, where they all met on Jekyll Island to put together this thing, the, the Federal Reserve. Well, the Federal Reserve Act was passed. December 23rd of 1913. Now, now, why is that date interesting? That date is two days before Christmas. Now, in 1913, it wasn't that easy to get home from Washington, D.C. You didn't hop on a plane and went home in two hours. 
You took trains and everything else. It took days to get home. So half of Congress was gone for the holidays. And the Senate pushed it through on the eve of Christmas Eve with less than uh, two-thirds of Congress present, or at least the Senate. And that's how it came about. Woodrow Wilson signed it, and now we transferred the ability to create money from the United States Treasury to an unelected group of bankers. And the way it was sold to us was, well, they'll be able to stabilize the economy, keep the banks from going under. FDIC was created uh, to insure the banks. And uh, all is good. Now, there's debate and there's been lawsuits. Is this constitutional? Because the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution clearly states that Congress should have the power to coin or create money and regulate the value thereof. It's very, very plain. But today, or since 1913, the Fed, which is a privately owned company, it is not part of the U.S. government. They want you to believe that it's like an agency of the U.S. It's not. It's a total lie. The, the Fed is not part of the U.S. government. Uh, no more than Federal Express is. Is Federal Express the nation's uh, shipping company? No, of course not. Well, the Federal Reserve is not the U.S. government. The U.S. government has very little control or effect over the Federal Reserve. The president nominates the chairman. There's 12 board of governors that rotate, uh, and every two years the president can nominate a new governor, and they're staggered every two years. The, 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 they're on for 14 years, I believe, or 12 years, and uh, they stagger them so no one administration could stack the Federal Reserve. And that's the thing. The Federal Reserve, you know— could be politicized. And they say, well, it's independent, it's not politicized. It is politicized. I'll tell you, there's so many instances, going back to Richard Nixon brought in uh, uh, the head of the Federal Reserve and demanded that, that, that he lower interest rates going into the election. And, and they capitulated. Who actually owns the Federal Reserve? Well, the ownership of... Um, of the central bank and central banks around the world is a very well-kept secret, but it has been revealed, and I'm going to reveal it to you. This is who owns the Federal Reserve. Rothschild Bank of London. Why would a foreign country own part of our central bank and have influence over it? Well, they're not the only one. The Warburg Bank of Hamburg, Germany. The Rothschild Bank of Berlin. Well, before its demise, Lehman Brothers uh, was an owner of it. Well, they're gone now. Lazard Brothers of Paris. Kuhn Loeb Bank of New York. Israel Moses Seif Banks of Italy. Goldman Sachs, New York. Warburg Bank of Amsterdam. Chase Manhattan Bank of New York. So these bankers, you can see half of them are European. 
And, and these bankers are connected to the London banking houses, which ultimately control the Fed. So England lost the Revolutionary War with us, um, and now they're controlling us through our banking system over the years. Isn't that interesting? So uh, the Federal Reserve is at the behest of the banks. They do not work for the people. The Federal Reserve works for the banks that own them and do everything they can to enrich those banks. And if you go back in history, Presidents Lincoln, Jackson, Kennedy tried to stop these central bankers by printing U.S. dollars outside of the Fed through the Treasury. What happened to these people? <laughs> uh, yeah, ask John F. Kennedy. He was very anti-Fed. And uh, you don't mess with the bankers. Money is power. Remember that. You know, the Fed's books aren't open to the public. Congress has yet, since 1913, yet audited it. So they have a lot of power. They're very independent. Um, They usurp the government of the United States, the role of the United States, uh, and they control everything here. And there's... um, there's no men, there's no body, body of men more entrenched in power than this arrogant credit monopoly, which is the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve banks. These criminals have robbed this country of more than enough money to pay the national debt to zero. They've robbed it. The government of the United States permitted the Federal Reserve Board to steal from the people of this country. And they still do. Think about it. It must be nice to be able to print money. If you or I did it, we'd go to jail. But the Fed is the biggest counterfeiting operation the world has ever seen. Oh, and by the way, the people who enacted the Fed uh, shortly thereafter started the IRS a few months later. So the government had to create an income tax to pay the interest expense to the Fed shareholders of the debt that they were creating. By the way, the, the, income, talk, the income tax was never legally passed. That's a whole other segment to talk about later on. It was never legally passed. Um... There's an old quote from Amschel Rothschild. Again, his bloodline controls the Fed. The Rothschilds are in everything. His quote was, allow me to control the issue and the nation's money, and I care not who makes its laws. And he's right. There's more power in the control of the money of the country uh, than it is a legislator. He went on to say, for if one unscrupulous group is allowed to print the nation's money, it could eventually use that money to gain control of the press and the politicians and thus gain control of, the, of making the nation's laws and finally control the nation itself. Wow. That's Rothschild telling you that. And that's exactly what's happened. 
Um, ben Franklin said in his autobiography uh, that the inability of the colonists to get the power to issue their own money permanently out of the hands of George III and the international bankers was one of the prime reasons for the Revolutionary War. Thomas Jefferson said, quote, I believe that the ba- I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. Already they've raised up a money aristocracy that has set the government at defiance. The issuing power of money, he said, should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. And at the time, he's talking about the Bank of England. He also uh, later said, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of currency, first by inflation and then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until the children will wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. Charles Lindbergh, he became a congressman after his flight. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, Congressman Charles Lindbergh of Minnesota said, quote, the Federal Reserve Act establishes the most gigantic trust on earth. When uh, President Wilson signs this bill, the invisible government of the monetary power will be legalized. The worst legislative crime of the ages perpetrated, perpetrated by this banking and currency bill. So you can see back in the day, we were being warned about that. Even Napoleon, a sympathizer for international bankers, he turned against them in the last years of his rule. He said, quote, when a government is dependent upon bankers for money, they and not the leaders of the government control the situation. Since the hand that gives is above the hand that takes. Money has no motherland. Financiers are without patriotism and without decency. Their sole object is gain. So uh, you could see the controversy about the Federal Reserve. And it goes on today. And they have total power over us. Now, you, now, they've been uh, very aggressive in raising interest rates. After causing the, reset, uh, the inflation that we're living through now, through quantitative easing, $120 billion a month of printing money, I mean, how did they think this wasn't going to wind up with inflation? And now they are... Um, aggressively raising interest rates and will continue to do so. Uh, the Fed met this. They didn't meet this week. They meet. Um, the next meeting is uh, September 20th to 21st, and they're definitely going to raise rates. Then they meet November 1st and 2nd, and then they meet December 13th and 14th. Um, they, they, they meet eight times per year. And if they need be, they, they have emergency meetings. And... Uh, 
Fed governors in between meetings, they do a lot of speeches. These people are very um, uh, 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 wanted, uh, you know, at, at conferences and so forth. I mean, let's face it, they're, they're some of the most powerful financiers in the world as part of the Federal Reserve. So to have a Fed governor come to your Bankers Association meeting and, and, and give a speech, big deal. And they're always doing that. And the markets and Wall Street and financial news, we always listen to what these people have to say. Because they're voting members of the Federal Reserve. I mean, they're going to be in that, in that meeting on, on September 20th and 21st, and they're going to make a decision on interest rates and, uh, and what's going forward. So you want to hear what they have to say because it's indicative of what the Fed is going to do or predictive. And this week, no less than five or six Fed governors came out, and all of them were hawkish. That's another term that's used when we talk about the Federal Reserve. You know, accommodative monetary uh, policy, restrictive monetary policy, hawkish versus dovish. Hawkish means higher interest rates, damn the economy, we're going to battle inflation. And markets don't like hawkish statements or a hawkish Fed or a restrictive Fed. Because it's that it's that it's that free flowing money, that money that's being printed every month that goes to Wall Street, that buys stocks, that buys bonds. It pushes asset prices up. And we've seen that over the last few years. We've seen major stock market increases because that money found a home in the stock market. Even though we were going through one of the worst recessions ever, even though we were going through a pandemic where businesses were shutting down, 60 million people went to unemployment, the market was going up after a short-lived crash. Because of the accommodative, dovish monetary policy of the Fed, the printing of money, the stimulus, everything that was going into the economy. And that money found its way into housing, that's why we saw this rapid increase. That's inflation. We saw inflation in the stock market. We even saw inflation in the bond market as yields continued to drop. And this sowed the seeds of the inflation that we're dealing with today. Now, the inflation we're dealing with today is, is twofold. It's monetary inflation. And it's supply chain inflation. Now, the Fed can only affect the monetary part of it. They could, they could kill demand by raising interest rates and mortgage rates go up so you don't go buy a house. Housing prices go down. People stop spending money. Businesses stop expanding. Um, they start laying people off. All these things kill demand. And we're starting to see it in, in um, gasoline prices. I came in today, 375 was the... Um, Price per gallon, it's the lowest it's been in a while. Still high compared to where it was a couple of years ago, but not $5. Why is the, it going down? Because people are driving less. People can't afford filling up their car every week for $70, $80, $90, both husband and wife. So they're cutting back their driving as much as they possibly can, which means less fill-ups, less demand, economics 101.
But inflation is still high. This coming week, we'll get the CPI and the PPI. Uh, we'll see what that looks like. My guess is it won't be terribly bad because of the decline in energy prices that we, we continue to see here. Meanwhile, everything else is still going up, groceries, uh, meat, grain. But the Fed can only affect inflation to a certain extent because of two other factors. The supply chain issue. If you're just not getting stuff in, the price of it's going to stay high. I don't care where the Fed puts interest rates. If you have food shortages, we'll talk about that later. I mean, you know, we're going to have major food shortages around the world due to crop failures, supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine. We're starting to see it already. The U.N.'s warning of major famines, plural, around the world, especially in poorer countries that aren't going to be able to get grain and rice and things like that. No, no central bank in the world is going to change that. It's not going to make magically, you know, a 40% decline in rice production reverse itself. You can't do that with monetary policy. Also, you have this little pesky thing, which is called the budget deficit of the U.S. government. If we have a budget deficit, we have to borrow more money. Nobody's buying our bonds because nobody wants them. So the Federal Reserve monetizes it. It has to print money to buy our debt. So no matter what they do with interest rates, they're still going to be creating money as the buyer of last resort of our budget deficit. And just recently, I mean, Congress does not stop spending money. That's what they do. That's what they live for. And they just passed the quote-unquote Inflation Reduction Act that spent $700 billion on Green New Deal garbage and isn't going to work, but is inflationary. It does the opposite of what the act says it's going to do. It's the Green New Deal. That's what it is, but that doesn't sell, so they change it to the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh, oh, inflation's bad. I want it reduced. And the lemmings think that, oh, yeah, Inflation Reduction Act sounds good. Trust me, it's the opposite. Every one of these acts that Congress puts out, whatever the act is called, just reverse it. It's the Inflation Acceleration Act. Now, uh, Goldman Sachs uh, came out this week and they lifted their forecast for the pace of interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. The, uh, Goldman expects the Fed to hike uh, 75 basis points this month, 50 basis points in November, up from the previous forecast of 50 basis points in September and 25 basis points in November. And now they're saying uh, 25 basis points in December. So that's 1.5% additional interest rate hike um, between now and the end of the year. And we're at 25 now. So that brings us to 4%. I don't think these markets can handle that. I don't think this economy can handle that. So it's a scorched earth policy. And uh, statements by Federal Reserve Chairman Powell and the governor's they are hell-bent on destroying inflation at any cost. And a couple of weeks ago, you know, the Fed chairman came out and said that uh, Americans have to be prepared for pain to get through this. See how much power the Federal Reserve has? They have power to give you pain, businesses and, 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 and families alike. Now, um... 
ex-Fed uh, vice chairman, Rich uh, Clarita, was on CNBC this week. And now he's the ex-Fed chair, vice chair. I mean, second in command of the Federal Reserve. So when he talks, you got to listen to what he's saying. First of all, he talks to all his friends at the Federal Reserve, so he knows what they're doing. And this is what he had to say about the Fed going forward. On the one hand, the Fed says they're data dependent. On the other hand, we hear these numbers like 4%, and they're kind of guiding us yeah. to, to this number. Is this data dependent, or are they going to 4% come hell or high water? Well, I think I think they're going to 4% hell or high water, if I had to put it into two boxes. They are data dependent, but that's why they're going to 4%. Steve, inflation is way too high. Inflation was way too high last year. Uh, the Fed had a lot of company, and I was part of it in getting the inflation forecast wrong. But, but job one, and really I think of the Fed right now, until inflation comes down a lot, the Fed's really a single mandate central bank. The chair made clear the Fed knows that if you squander price stability, it's very hard to achieve and sustain maximum employment. So I think that they, they are data dependent, and the data is inflation is too high, so I think they're going at least to, to 4%. All right, so, uh, so we're going to 4%. He knows better than anybody. And he said that the, right now the Fed has a single mandate. Remember I told you to have dual mandates, keep inflation low, and maximize employment. Well, he's saying that the maximize employment part of it, he's, they're not even looking at that right now. If the unemployment rate skyrockets here, they don't care because they're a single mandate central bank right now, which is to battle inflation. And the, uh, the scariest thing about this is that once they get their interest rates to where they're going to get them, they may have to keep them there for a long time, which means a protracted recession, protracted pain, protracted difficult housing market, difficult stock market, difficult bond market. Um, but a lot of people are saying that... Uh, by them going to 4%, the economy and the markets are going to get so bad that they're going to have to pivot and say, you know what, we can't do this anymore. I mean, we're just causing too much pain. So Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, uh, very powerful, questionable constitutionally. Uh, were they constitutionally, uh, 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 is it a constitutional um Mandate that they they were able to be formed and take away the power of the treasury to create money. Well, that's been debated for a hundred years right now. So far, the courts have upheld it. And why would they upheld it? Even though the Constitution says only Congress can do this, uh, is because they're saying, well, Congress, through an act of 1913, the Federal Reserve Act, transferred their responsibility to the Fed, and since they did it voluntarily, it's legal which is kind of uh, dubious at best. All right, there you have it. Two hours of the best of the financial physician. Hopefully you learned something, you enjoyed our program today. We will be back next Sunday uh, to talk about money, markets, and politics. Thanks for joining us. Remember the website, the podcast is there at thefinancialphysician.com. Love your emails. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I answer each and every email. You want to make a financial consultation with me? No obligation, no cost. 732-905-8100 is the phone number. Have a wonderful week and join me next Sunday and every Sunday for the next edition of The Financial Physician.